Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thank you for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Please do leave us a nice review. This week is a financial crisis in our future. Now, that may seem a strange question, with the U.S. economy continuing to create bountiful jobs, unemployment hitting a record low, and markets starting the year in buoyant mood. But could these very conditions be sowing the seeds of financial distress? The Federal Reserve raised interest rates again last week after a year of sharp rate hikes. And Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has made clear that he thinks the central bank needs to do even more. With labor markets so tight, the problem is that wage demands seem likely to remain strong, putting upward pressure on inflation. One major financial institution now thinks the Fed funds rate could go as high as 6% this year, up from zero a year ago and still just below five right now. Now, that pace of tightening is almost unprecedented and has often in the past produced financial distress against the backdrop of years of easy money and massive expansion in private and public debt. We could be creating the conditions for a new crisis. And after all, we do seem to get such crises with remarkable regularity just about every 10 years or so. Perhaps we are, after all, overdue for one. That, at least, is the view of my guest this week, Ken Rogoff. Rogoff is professor of economics at Harvard and served as chief economist of the IMF. His expertise is financial economics. He's written extensively about the dangers of excessive debt, particularly government debt, including a famous and, to some people, controversial book about the relationship between levels of debt and the onset of crises and recessions. Ken is also a chess grandmaster. In fact, he dropped out of high school to concentrate on chess before deciding that the dismal science was, in fact, his true vocation. And I interviewed him just recently. Ken, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the economy. Everybody's focused on these very short-term movements. What's going to happen to the economy this year? Are we going to have a recession? How bad is inflation? Is inflation under control? Might we get away with a soft landing? We can talk a little bit about that, but I want to really get in with you to some of the larger structural questions, perhaps, that face the economy, face the US, and indeed the global economy at the moment. And one of the things that you've been writing a lot about are financial risks. We are adapting to this extraordinary period over the last year where we've seen interest rates rise dramatically, way faster than anybody was anticipating a year ago. Federal funds rate has gone up over 400 basis points. Market interest rates have gone up varying amounts too. So we've seen a remarkable financial transformation. And as yet, there seems to be a reasonable level of optimism around that this is going to be navigated quite smoothly and that we'll get through. Again, we talk about the macroeconomy, soft landing, but we should be able to manage this. But I think you have a slightly different view. You think these kind of things, and speaking from a historical perspective, this kind of change doesn't really happen without creating risks. Can you just tell us exactly what those risks would be and how bad you think it could get? Well, sort of two long-term historical points. First, you usually don't have the same kind of financial crisis happened twice within a short period in the same place. I have to rule out Venezuela and Argentina and a few places. But by and large, if you had a banking crisis 10 years ago, people remember it. Investors, regulators, politicians, consumers. And that gives you a lot of resilience to having it happen again. And that's really goes beyond the numbers of what's going on. And a second point I would make is that Typically, one thing is not enough to cause a problem. So 
when you have some kind of debt crisis, inflation crisis, financial crisis, it's typically at least two things. So for example, for emerging markets, which studied a lot, if commodity prices go down, many are exporters and real interest rates go up, that's a deadly combination that very often spells a problem. You know, we look forward to the coming year. The question more is, will we have a recession? And if we have a recession, will interest rates quickly come down? I think there's a significant chance we'll have a recession. I don't want to put a number on it, but it's, it's clearly a material risk. The experts that the Wall Street Journal polls thinks that it's quite substantial. But I also think that when that happens, inflation may not come down that quickly and interest rates may not come down that quickly. Nevertheless, the United States might not be the place to look. It's more elsewhere. We are in a dollarized world. So if the U.S. is keeping interest rates at an elevated level and the U.S. is going to recession and Europe and other places, somebody is going to have a problem. And it's not easy to say where, because if I knew I would tell you, but I think it often happens in the place where it can't happen. So in a place I would look at is Japan, second safest country in the world. And I'm not necessarily saying the government debt, but they haven't had inflation or positive interest rates for an eternity. And it's just hard to know what's baked into the system when you've been going on like that. We saw what happened in the UK, for example, with the pension funds. Another example would be Italy, where the support from the European Eurozone countries has been great, but with zero interest rates, it's free. And if real interest rates settle at a higher level, it could be much more difficult. But just a couple examples. So there's a recession, global recession, particularly a US recession or a global recession that would trigger the financial fallout for obvious reasons, I suppose, because the usual impact of a recession, it has an effect on asset prices, on incomes, on, exactly. on, on employment levels. Exactly. In addition to producing macroeconomic distress, could create specific financial distress. Yeah, and the value, the value of your collateral about. goes down and it goes down differently in right, other right. places and somebody gets caught short in these situations. By the way, I want to be clear, I'm not saying we're seeing a government default no, in Japan. No, of course. Uh, it would be more like inflation or financial repression, but they could have problems in their private sector that are very painful and difficult to deal with when your debt's 260% of GDP and a lot of it's very short term and interest rates go up. The government has a way to deal with that, but they don't necessarily have as big an umbrella to put around everything else if there are other problems. What would be the mechanism by then? And again, we're not talking specifics here about particular countries. One of the risks, obviously, that we've seen in previous financial crises, sort of which you're an expert, particularly foreign currency mismatches, for example, where they've maybe borrowed heavily in US dollars. And we saw that in the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s. I mean, I'm guessing you're saying it could be anything, but are there particular areas that you're looking at where these areas of risk could be? Well, I mean, the most obvious place would be in the so-called shadow banking sector, which is enormous regulation has pushed a lot of things out into there. And we don't understand what the risks are when pension funds, insurance companies, private equity. So like a small example that I don't think necessarily would be the big one is I do think there's a lot of room for real estate to fall. If interest rates stay at an elevated level, but real estate falls more slowly than equities. And there are probably a number of firms that have bought up big chunks of commercial real estate and not really marked it to market and they borrowed from banks. And so that that's not going to cause a systemic crisis the way something at the heart of the banking system would. I'm just giving an example. Yeah. 
of where things you just didn't think could happen. Yeah. Could. And historically, because of the experience of 2007, 2009, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, I think we tend to focus very much on that. But actually, historically, if you look back over the last 50 years, these financial crises have happened with sort of remarkable regularity and frequency. You got secondary banking crisis of the 70s, Latin American debt crisis, the Asian crisis, the 80s, Latin American 90s, the Asian crisis. So I don't want to minimize, but it's almost routine, really, that we have these periodic crises. Well, I think that's right. I mean, the 2008, 2009, that was the worst thing since the Great Depression Mm. in terms of the global economy. The Asian crisis of the 90s was pretty bad. Mm. If you were in Asia, that was like pretty bad. The Latin American debt crisis was lost decade of growth in the 1980s. So it's not necessarily something that'll hit everyone, but you're right. We haven't seen it yet. So to be clear, all of the developing economies, with very few exceptions, are either in default or about to default. And that goes up into countries that we didn't used to think of as emerging markets, but have become frontier emerging markets. And Sri Lanka has been, you know, headline example, but there's, you know, uh, Lebanon, Zambia, you know, many, many others where, so there there are these defaults of these sort of lower income emerging markets or middle income, in some cases, emerging markets. But it has been surprising after the pandemic that we haven't seen a Brazil or a Mexico Mm. or even Turkey happen. Especially given the levels of fiscal support that the financial crisis prompted, right? That's right. A country like India was actually doing a lot of the same things the United States was of telling people they didn't have to pay their rent, the banks end up having to eat it. And it's been remarkable the extent to which they've been able to absorb that. Some of it is if we pick on those regions like Latin America, they did have this huge debt crisis in the 80s, and a lot of it had a pretty bad problem in the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. So they have made some adjustments, but not everyone has. Yeah, And so I think it's a really a safe bet that if the world goes even into a mild recession, but interest rates stay high, there'll be some prominent examples. Let's talk briefly about the US, but also perhaps, want for a better word, the developed world's fiscal situation. Now, you wrote a book famously with Carmen Reinhardt 13, 14 years ago, it was kind of mischaracterized, but did track a pretty consistent rule that seemed to suggest there was a certain sustainable level of public debt. How you think about that now and, and where the US and other countries now stand in relation to that? So actually, we never said that, yeah. but some polemicists, yeah. left-wingers, Paul Krugman, pushed this idea. Yeah. Actually, our book said that advanced countries don't default, right. period. And, you know, you can have inflation, but you don't default. So running into trouble is simply having interest rates rise faster than you're comfortable with and you have to make an adjustment. Or actually, what we mainly said is that it's very high debt is associated with lower growth. Think yeah. Japan, think Italy. Our paper about that actually was in 2010 seems to have stood up pretty darn well over the last 12 years, despite, I guess, our critics said that, look at how much Greece was borrowing, and they seem to be growing fantastically. So I think that clearly real interest rates have fallen. And so the sustainable level of debt is higher, but it's not a free lunch. And it reduces your fiscal space to respond to a crisis, to respond to problems. 
But no, advanced economies can inflate. Mm. So that's what we'll see. Even in Europe, that would be a solution. And so you'd expect that. I mean, we've seen this huge increase in debt in all of the advanced economies, including the United States, over the last few years in particular. Again, as you say, not much danger of the U.S. defaulting. We get into the arguments about credit limits and that kind of stuff, debt limits with the U.S. Congress, but not much plausibility about the U.S. defaulting. But the answer is inflation, and we inflate away, essentially, of the value of that debt. And that's what we're doing. Is that essentially too simplistic, or is that what we're doing? Well, I mean, in the case of the United States, I don't think it was the first reason for the policy, but it was a very convenient outcome. Effectively, if we take not just year-on-year inflation, but cumulatively, how much has inflation been higher than people are expecting? It's certainly a number north of 10%, and that's a de facto default. I mean, that's how advanced countries default. If you look at emerging market defaults, they're actually typically only like 30% Mm. that they default on in the Mm. end. Look at the UK, for example could well end up having a 20% cumulative inflation above expectations. But it's not a crisis. I mean, it's bad management Mm. because inflation's problematic. It's not good for growth. Most of our book was not about advanced country crises and it was not about debt limits. A lot of it focused on emerging markets and advanced economies used to default Mm. all the time. Mm. That's, I think, a thing people didn't realize. Spain's defaulted 13 times, France nine times. You can go on and on. The United States hasn't defaulted on debt that we call foreign debt, where it's adjudicated in foreign courts. But the 1930s, when they changed the gold standard, believe me, if you live somewhere else, it felt a lot like Argentina not paying its debts. And that's what the whole world thought. That's what the Supreme Court ruled. The Supreme Court ruled that it was a default. But then they conveniently said, but we don't think there was a lot of harm. We're going to give a dollar award to it. There's this famous case, two cases. But again, this inflation that we're seeing, as you say, it is a kind of a de facto default in terms of where it leaves bondholders. Yeah, yeah. Quickly, I want to move on to some broader structural questions about the way the economy is changing, because I know you've got some very interesting thoughts about that too. But just very quickly, where does this leave the Fed? Because if you're right and we do see a recession, but if we do see a recession and we do see the accompanying financial risks and financial crisis that you talk about, the Fed's got this sort of complex responsibility. By the way, we may have a recession at relatively high and above target continuing levels of inflation for the Fed, right? That could be the problem. So the Fed is going to, on the one hand, be obviously consider how to deal with the recession and the usual response obviously will be to lower rates. That would also help, I suppose, with the financial crisis. That's typically been its response to financial crisis. And yet at the same time, we may still have this very elevated rate of inflation. It's a very complicated set of circumstances. Yes, I think I think actually in many ways we've hit a turning point in the global economy, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 70s, where the nature of the shocks has changed. So there's been this long period where financial commentators, if I read what a lot of, say, Wall Street economists say, they sort of give lip service to what we call supply shocks, but say, oh, they're nothing. It's all demand. So when there's too much demand, say, we have too much fiscal stimulus. It raises output. It raises inflation. What's the answer? You raise interest rates. It lowers both. But if you have a supply shock, for example, supply chains break down, it makes the prices of things expensive, but it's bad for output. You have energy prices go up. You are caught between a rock and a hard place. And although central bankers say we understand everything now, we don't necessarily understand better how to deal with the public when you're caught with this choice between if I raise interest rates, it's going to make the recession worse. If I don't raise interest rates, we've got inflation. 
And the central bankers are sort of struggling around communication about this, partly not knowing what's going on, what's temporary, what's permanent. And I suspect more of the supply side's permanent than people want to believe. Uh, For example, geopolitical Mm. difficulties, that's a disaster. Mm -hmm. And that can have long-term, it's basically negative implications. And the kind of thing which puts upward pressure on prices, downward pressure on output, not fun being a central banker. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Ken Rogoff talking about debt, recession, and the risk of financial crisis. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Harvard professor of economics, Ken Rogoff, and we're talking about the risk of financial crisis for the U.S. economy. Seems like there's a lingering supply shock from the labor market, right? I mean, this great resignation, the fact that we have very high levels of demand for labor relative to the supply, exacerbated perhaps by demographic factors in much of the world. I mean, is it another structural factor that could be changing the conditions in which monetary policy has to be made? So it certainly affects how to read labor data. They don't know how to read it. And just as an example, the Fed has been encouraged that wage growth wasn't as high as it seemed. But what does wage growth even mean these days when people are working four days a week from home and one day at work and life may be better, it might be a more efficient arrangement, but the employer might not be willing to pay as much for it. You're getting a less effective worker, your productivity is lower, so that effective wages are going up more than they seem. I'm just picking an example. The labor market's tough to read. Now, the thing I think I feel strongly about are the sure looks like we live in a second Cold War. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see any signs that are good on that front. And we used to spend almost twice as much a share of GDP just at the end of the 80s. When the Berlin Wall fell, we were spending over 7% on defense. And now it's a little over three and a half. I'm not even going back to the Vietnam War or World War II. II So why wouldn't it have to go up more, not to mention Europe, other places? That's a big structural change, Mm -hmm. the need to do green investment. We can debate about the craziness around the policies, and I believe we should have a carbon tax, and there's no other really sane thing that's going to work. But however you do it, if you actually did it, you'd have to be basically burning down your house to build another house. Now, there are people who say, oh, that's great for growth. Well, it's a dot. It's Mm. just you're getting zero growth over. And the people don't take into account that for a long time, you don't have a house to live in. I'm making the energy transition analogy. So I think there are a whole host of things that are pushing to a turning point. China would be another one where I don't think they're going to grow in the next decade 
like they did in the last, forget this year, but the next decade. Can we talk about China just briefly for a little bit? Because it, it is very important. It's been an enormously important contributing factor to global growth in the last 20, 30 years. As you say, we've seen structural changes that are slowing growth. We've seen the COVID-related changes in growth. You've looked at a lot of the Chinese economy. And then there are these concerns, of course, that a lot of the growth that we have seen in the last five or so years, five, 10 years, a lot of it's come in the real estate sector, creating what most people, the Chinese government doesn't really acknowledge it, although it starts, seems to be starting to, most people see as financial excesses in the real estate and financial sector. Is that a possible source of crisis in the course of the next year? Well, or two? Crisis is the word for it, but I see China slowing down a lot. And of course, the over-centralization of power, the uh, demographics are adverse. But you're right, real estate and infrastructure has been the go-to thing for the Chinese government. When they stimulate the economy, that's basically what they're doing. And the problem is that this, their measures are the size of the real estate sector alone. It's probably 23% of the economy, and that's not counting infrastructure, which adds quite a bit to that. If you go to Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen, which we used to do yeah. uh, sometimes, but can't, yeah. Yeah. maybe will again, it seems fine. But the trouble is 60% of Chinese GDP is in the Cincinnati's of China, and they're called tier three cities and below. They exclude the 35 richest cities, 60% of GDP. And there is built up as looking at Beijing. Yeah. And they built it, they had an idea, they hoped to spread people out, didn't work. The jobs have not come. People are slowly leaving in the context of a declining population already. And they can't just keep doing it. So they're talking about, well, we'll do green energy instead. We'll build lots of green energy. But as clever as they are, they're not able to put all the construction workers and have people building furniture into green energy. I think it's a huge transition. Centralized systems are good at building cement factories and steel factories and bridges. They're very good at it. When you have to make a transition to things more consumer-oriented, they're not. And I don't see any evidence that China's shown that it's going to be flexible in that dimension. Before we finish, I want to talk about these structural changes in the economy. You just said earlier that we seem to be at a turning point in the economy. Well, that is that does seem to be something that really is kind of heaving into view right now. And in particular, we've had this extraordinary period of very low interest rates. I mean, obviously, since the financial crisis, but even before the financial crisis in the early 2000s, interest rates were historically relatively low. But certainly since 2009, we've had essentially zero interest rates or indeed the extraordinary phenomenon of negative interest rates in some European and other countries. And there's been a, you know, like a, the structural causes of that. Some people have talked about so-called secular stagnation and the various things that may have contributed to weaken growth and therefore perhaps a lower what economists talk about equilibrium interest rate. But as we've now seen the Fed obviously raise rates dramatically, as I said at the beginning, we've seen this wider tightening of monetary and financial conditions. Is that, do you think, a, a kind of a new reality, a sort of a new normal now that we're going to have to get used to in a new, we're entering a new phase of the uh, economy? I think eventually after this recession's over, yes. So interest rates were low in the early 2000s, but Inflation, you know, is well below interest rates. Right. If you're looking at the 10-year rate, forget right. the short rate, you know, we're talking two or two and a half percent, and the 30-year rate was higher. It actually, those things fell to minus one practically during the period, and maybe average zero from, say, 2012 to 2021. And there is some slight downward long-term trend over centuries. One combined, you can look at my work with Barbara Rossi and Paul Schmelzing. But there's reversion to mean. 
And we've had many periods where interest rates seemed low. And so this whole, you know, secular stagnation was a brilliant characterization. But the idea that this was going to be forever was wrong. And the idea that, oh, it's demographics, it's inequality, it's productivity, those don't hold up when you look at longer periods. And I think, for example, the fact debt's risen so much, that alone probably explains half the rise we're going to get. It's an endogenous response. Yeah. Of course, if you have zero interest rates, you're going to have things that happen in the economy that push it back. So I think summarizing, if we look at the world and the structural changes that we're going to have, one is we probably are headed for a world of higher real inflation-adjusted interest rates. I don't know for sure. That's the big question. We're probably headed for a much less fast-growing China than we've gotten used to. And those are just gigantic changes in the economic And what would that mean? I mean, I know you're reluctant to put a precise number on it. As you say, we've had a period of, say, at least 10 years, excluding the last year or so, where we've had real interest rates essentially roughly zero or negative. So you're saying historically that's abnormal. You'd expect a reversion to what? What is the normal typical 1% to 2% real rates? So again, there's a very slight downward trend, but it adds up maybe 1.5 basis points, 1.6 basis points a year. But even over 20 years, we're getting 30 basis points or something out of that. So I would see if we're looking at the 10-year rate ending up, depending on what inflation is, with a real rate of in the 1 to 2 range. And I think inflation will be more in the 2 to 3 range than it's been. So the 10-year rate's going to be a lot higher than people are used to. Just clarifying, what was the reason we had that extended period, that extended abnormal period? People talk about the positive supply shock that we had with China entering the global economy, with globalization and all of the benefits to the global economy that flow from that. Was it that sort of short-term impetus to the economy? Was it demographics? I mean, was it something else? What was going on in that period that we are now leaving behind? I think China's a big deal in driving the low inflation, but in the low real interest rates, the precipitous drop after the financial crisis. That was probably a combination of many things, some of which Larry Summers highlighted. I don't think demographics was irrelevant, but also regulation, fear. People are more conservative yeah. afterwards, and yeah. they save more. Look at everyone you know. Yeah. Probably will say something about that. And look at corporates piling up money. Look at emerging markets piling up money. And that happened during the Great Depression was another example of a period that we've had that. So we don't know. I say, but we have seen this before, and there's endogenous responses is that the regulators lighten up after a while. They get bribed to lighten up or they lighten up. Is it that people borrow a lot and that starts driving up debt? Is it the children forget that this ever happened? I don't know. We haven't really systematically put it together, but I think it's a major change in the landscape ahead. That's my conjecture. They say the most dangerous words in markets are this time it's different. (laughs) Well, we've used that title already on our (laughs) previous book, so we'll have to think of something else. Ken Rogoff, Professor of Economics, Harvard University. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much for joining us. I'll be back next week with another exploration of one of the pressing topics facing our world. In the meantime, have a great week. Goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.